You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. This edition of It's My Money is brought to you by Brenthurst Wealth, your partner for global wealth creation. It's Tuesday, so it's time for It's My Money, brought to you by Brentus Wealth, which was voted South Africa's top boutique wealth manager in 2020 and also 2017. With me today is Aaron Ruttenberg. And we're going to talk about something which is quite close to my heart. The headline is the following. Surviving a stock market crash or bear market. And it goes on to say the following. The most common concern readers expressed to me in my inbox is that they want to figure out how to prepare for the possibility of a stock market crash or prolonged bear market. Aaron, of course, it is just a possibility, but it's always a possibility. But it hasn't been a possibility or a reality for what is it now? It's about 13 years, isn't it? 12, 13 years since we had any sort of bear market. Good afternoon, Lindsay, and to your listeners. Yeah, you're exactly correct. It hasn't. I mean, I've got a few data points, but 12, 13 years sounds about right. I use examples of nine years where you know the market has gone up, especially the S&P 500 specifically. Um, and it's like a never-ending cycle with no healthy corrections, at least. No, and it is a healthy correction. It's almost like, you know, you get a fire on Table Mountain, which is which always causes headlines. But on the other hand, after the fire, you know, the flora and fauna come back and they come back even stronger. And I just wonder if the stock market needs that fire. I don't know if it should have it, but certainly sometimes it's necessary to flush out the weak holders. Exactly, especially the leveraged holders, the ones that eventually grow debt in parts of low interest rate environments where the Fed are printing money and you know, people can go buy houses, can take leverage or margin on their shares or their stocks, and then eventually get wiped out, and to your point. Yes, it allows indeed. us to probably buy back at a, at a cheaper rate. Exactly. The last stock market crash you say in your article, which you kindly sent me, in the United States back in 2008, yes, that was nearly 13 years ago, uh, more than 13 years ago, actually, caused the S&P 500 to lose over 55% of its value within 18 months. I mean, it's a massive move. And we, if we get 2% today, we, we, we set up and take notice. But 55% in a short period of time, that's an extraordinary thing. You go on to the philosophical and academic side of a stock market crash, and you say, what causes a stock market crash. Over to you on this one, please, Aaron. So, of course, um, for the listeners, when my article does get published, they'll be able to view the graphs and all the data points that are presented, but um, which can also, you know, lead to people being a little bit more, you know, understand what to do when these stock markets crash or there's a recession or there's a bear market, which I'll explain. But a stock market crash is a sharp and broad drop in a stock index. Like S&P 500, for example, there's no official definition for what a crash is, but if a double-digit decline happens within a couple of days or weeks, it's generally considered a crash. And a bear market, on the other hand, is you know more broadly defined. It's 20% or more decline in major stock index from a recent peak. And regardless of how sharp or gradual that decline is, the bear market remains until the stocks have recovered and surpassed that previous peak, which can take months or even years. Okay. The reasons for it are manifold. I mean, it could be a geopolitical event, which is increasingly unlikely these days because markets seem to brush them off because of the liquidity factor, which are boosting markets no matter what happens in the world. But also the business cycle is something I I think that if there's a bubble, the only way the bubble can be burst is a a change in the economic cycle, i.e. a sudden change, for example, in interest rates, or uh, which which we've been used to being cheap for so long. Interest rates have been incredibly low. So the only way I see that there could be a bear market in the future, or at least a a correction of 10% or more, is if 
interest rates rise and liquidity dries up or is reduced, which in a sense is what's starting to happen now, Aaron. That's what I'm starting to see happen. And I feel like it's important for every investor, whilst it might not go exactly according to plan and it can have, it can take different scenarios, and I've put a graph there to show um, you know, when a recession happened. But first, what's important is for investors to understand that the business cycle is something to to be very cognizant of. Um, you know, most economies go through these business cycles. They existed even before central banks, but now central banks play a big part in it as well, to your point. And essentially, um, the, the, they are all different, but most share a common pattern. And, you, and your readers will, or your listeners will be able to read that and see how I've plotted it. But a key point or key part of, of the pattern to be aware of is interest rates, to your point. Using the U.S. Federal Reserve as an example, because it is the hot topic at the moment, is they, they have two goals. One is to maximize employment and two is to keep inflation at around 2% per year, let's call it. And the main way to maximize employment is to lower key interest rates, which reduces the interest rates of mortgages and corporate bonds and all sorts of debt. Then it reduces interest rates in bank accounts. And this obviously encourages consumers to go ahead and take out cheap mortgage to buy a house or to take money out um, low interest savings accounts and buy stocks or other high risk assets that may even offer better dividend yields. It also entices businesses themselves to go ahead and buy some new bonds or debt to expand their businesses. And then the low interest rates entice people, again, and companies to consume and invest, which is good for the economy. However, when consumers and companies borrow a lot of money and they spend a lot of money, it often starts to create price inflation, which I feel like we're seeing today because mm. a lot of new money has been created. This is why I call the cycle different because um, new money is being created in this um, superficial you know, money where 40% of the supply right now of US dollars has happened because of COVID. So instead of you know, there being a low interest rate environment, now more money has been helicoptered over to people and they've been able to spend and create inflation. Supply chains might be a part of it, but I really don't believe in the transitory. Transitory. I'm not in the transitory camp. Good. And that's why I believe that <laughs> these central banks will start to raise ra rates, which will then, uh, you know, make debt more expensive eventually and increase interest rates that the bank savings accounts give. And then you start to slowly get people to be highly indebted. As I mentioned, there's leverage within stocks. People might get wiped out and people might not be able to pay their mortgages. And then we have a recession that eventually happens. So stock markets actually precede stock market rises, which we see now, always precede the recession. You'll first get a – and that's that's a little graph I've put there when the guys read it. But you'll first get a, a nice rise in the um, – the stock market, and then there'll be a recession that comes about. We have been through an extraordinary time, haven't we? I'm talking about 13 years. The markets actually bottomed in March 2009, I think it was. So I'm, I'm being a bit premature. It's actually 13 years in about four months' time, four or five months' time. But anyway, the point is that we've had uh, a global health crisis on the back of a central bank environment that was trying to get us to recover from the horrible recession of 2008. And actually, that started really in 2005, 2006, when the subprime crisis really started to rear its ugly head. But anyway, we've had uh, super low interest rates. We've had money pumped into the system for uh, for over a decade and then of course normalization could not occur Aaron because of the global health crisis so they kept these rates low but here we are a situation with rates nearly at zero in the United States but inflation consumer price inflation at 6.2 percent this simply cannot continue it's a question of how they manage it I think in order to avoid a crash yes it's simple 
you correct. You know, the whole point is that central banks, of course, they want to create employment, but and they want to create growth. But at the same time, they can't let things go out of hand. So, you know, by reducing, well, by increasing interest rates, you will have a part in the cycle where, and I call it, you know, after, let's say, you know, once all this euphoria has happened and people have taken out debt, um, eventually something breaks. So they have to be careful. And disciplined consumers, you know, need to, especially especially ones that are, are saving and are not becoming too indebted, need to stay that way. Because as soon as interest rates rise too quickly, and as soon as we see that inflation is coming through, then all of a sudden, I don't want to say it's a bubble. It could be a bubble. We don't know. Bursts. And there's a lot of debt being taken out and people can't pay back what they need to pay back. And then we lead into a recession. So I agree with you 100%. Okay, so we've done the theory and we've hypothesized as to what might happen in the future. And it will happen in the future. It's just a question of timing, but you have to be ready for it. So I want to have a look at the piece of your article or soon to be published article that says the following, the simple approach to survive a downturn. How do we do it? So... You know, obviously, I've, I've mentioned that simplicity is the best approach. So you need to make your portfolio diversified. We say it a lot. I've, I've even been on, on air saying diversification and asset allocation, which, which people can read about. But diversified portfolio and in investing amongst different asset classes and regions and rebalancing regularly, and I don't mean every month, but, you know, once a year and maintaining a high savings rate with low leverage. I cannot stress how leverage can all of a sudden come and bite you before it's too late, it's best to keep leverage low. You know, don't panic and sell stocks after a stock market crash or even a, a correction. Don't get over leveraged in mortgages as well, not just stocks, um, any type of leverage, in fact, including credit cards. You know, um, don't sell those stocks and occasionally take a step back and examine the bigger picture. I'll speak about asset class diversification. I'll speak about international diversification um, as well as the importance of, re of rebalancing, which I can touch on at each point if you'd like. Let's talk about the point that you made. Don't sell your stocks, don't panic, and don't listen to the headlines, and don't listen to Lindsay Williams's podcasts and his commentators who are saying this, this, and this. Because, you know, there's an old saying, don't close the stable door after the horse has bolted. In fact, I would turn it around and say that if you have the liquidity and if you have the stomach, that when a stock market does correct or, heaven forbid, crash, you should be using that. You should be deploying your capital in order to add to your positions if you you have the resources to do it because we know from history and if you look at your, your graphs that you've sent after the, the fall comes the rise and the rise is usually actually actually quite beneficial like the fire on table mountain exactly and that's why i speak about the importance of rebalancing so to your point um after a stock market crash most investors you know make it far worse for themselves because they sell after the market decline. A typical retail investor starts to read the headlines and they start to sell and they think the world is over, um, which means they never benefit from an eventual recovery in prices. So rather than selling stocks after they fall, you should usually be buying. It doesn't need to involve market timing because it can be done automatically with rebalancing. And this is why I like a diversified portfolio. So for example, he has you know, I, I mentioned a basic flow chart showing how investors can keep their asset allocations um, static over time. And I use an example, stocks, bonds, um, and, well, international stocks, domestic stocks, and bonds. Um, and in, obviously, nobody can see it now, but you'll, you'll have a portfolio consisting of 40% domestic stocks, 
30% foreign stocks and 30% bonds. When stocks go up, so now your 40% in domestic stocks has gone to 50% and your 30% in foreign stocks has gone to 35%, but now your bond weighting has reduced from 30 to 15, you can start selling stocks. And I mean, it would be wonderful if it's timed during the bear market but it, or, or during a crash, but it wouldn't be nothing set in stone. But that's the time to say, okay, well, I'm going to rebalance according to my strategy. I'm going to take some money out of stocks and put them back into bonds to rebalance my portfolio. And conversely, when stocks go down, which would generally happen if there's a correction or a crash, um, your bond allocation, which generally stays static, you'd be able to utilize now to buy back more of those stocks, domestic and foreign, when they go down. And that's to your point as well. Do you think there's, for the sophisticated investor, do you think there's a case for saying, okay, uh, volatility at the moment is low because markets are rising? And, uh, you know, when markets rise, volatility comes down. When when they fall, volatility goes up. Volatility is a key element in pricing options. So at the moment, I would imagine the options are quite cheap. Would you say to the, your sophisticated uh, client base, yeah, let's let's buy some six-month or nine-month or one-year put options in the market. Let's not sell anything at the moment. Let's not buy anything at the moment, but let's not sell anything at the moment. But what we should do is take out some insurance because a put option is something that is akin to insurance. So, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, that's definitely for the more sophisticated investor, not something we're too involved in. But selling options for income, for example, you know, this won't do a ton to help during a stock market crash. Um, it's a tactic that benefits from volatility and prolonged bear markets. You can sell you know, cash secured push op- put options, like mm. you mentioned, or covered call options to generate substantial investment income, even during flat or mildly bearish markets. But in an environment like the Nikkei, you know, the, the, the crash of the Japanese index Nikkei chart, or the Nikkei index, not chart, sorry. It is, you know, it's been a multi-decade bad period for buy and hold stock investors. So people generating income from high yield stock, stocks or options strategies have done a lot better. But again, every single market is different. So I, I'm not a, that's why I mentioned keep it simple. And I'd rather not go for the options route for the general investor, but for the, for the more sophisticated investor, yes, they can make up money through those uh, put options. Okay, let's have a look now. You've got um, you've got some clients, and they've done very well. Uh, they they're making money. They've taken a bit of profit here and there to to do whatever they need to do with their with their money. Uh, but you're probably advising them that at some stage this will end, and it will end in tears. So you you prepare them for it. You say in your summary the following: In summary, there are both simple and complex methods to protect your capital during a stock market crash or prolonged bear market. Most of the results coming from getting uh, a few major things right. Maintain a high savings rate, you say, and live below your means during prosperous times. In other words, don't go out and you know buy cigars and, and uh, hire limos and go on holiday and that, that sort of thing. Just, right. just treat it as a normal time. Absolutely. Um, I think when you're enjoying a bull market and it's been several years since the previous recession, that's when you should be beginning to prepare yourself for the next downturn. You know, once a downturn hits, it's already too late. So, you know, what separates smart consumers and businesses from average ones, they are cautious when others are greedy and opportunistic when others are fearful. So when most people should be saving at least 20%, for example, of their income and investing much of it, when the economy is strong and focusing on building their wealth and paying down debt and building an emerging fund, emergency fund and making sure that's in place. This is when you make sure your financial situation is rock solid. So 
you know, you're keeping that level head. And that's and so when the downturn comes, you're prepared and you're able to ride through the worst of it. You'd probably have cash on the side because you'd probably be rebalancing from bonds or your emergency. Maybe you built a bit more cash so you can deploy from your emergency fund, but you wouldn't be leveraging yourself. You wouldn't be, um, you know, during times of euphoria because that's when you, you're not getting greedy along with the herd. Second point you make in your summary, diversify your portfolio among several asset classes and geographic regions. This usually improves risk adjusted returns. Good times, bad times, ordinary times, sideways times, up times, down times, diversification should always be there, I think, Aaron. Absolutely. In any given decade, stocks of some countries do better than other countries. And if you have exposure to all the countries, you can smooth out your return of your portfolio and you know, risk adjusted and minimize the impact of stock market crashes. Interestingly, funny enough, there was research conducted um, that hypothetical investors who would have invested equally into the United States, Europe and Asia Pacific, um, it was done from 1970 to 2014 and rebalanced occasionally, um, would have done, had occasionally better returns, about 10.6% annualized in US dollars with lower volatility than any of those three markets provided independently. So it's an interesting and which is why I say international diversification. Third point and final point, rebalance your portfolio regularly and don't follow the herd. Don't panic sell stocks after a crash or euphoria buy stocks after a long bull market. So I would imagine at the moment, to that last point, you're not particularly adding uh, enthusiastically at the moment because this has been a long bull market. We're at record highs, let's face it, even on the JSE Securities Exchange. Exactly, and you'll be able to see within one of those graphs where um, you know stocks have grown so far and your bond allocation is so little, one can allocate a little bit towards bonds. And that's fine that bonds haven't grown that much because you'll be able to then take advantage eventually when, when, when the stocks do go down again. So nothing wrong with taking some profits off of the table. No. And uh, you say trading too frequently or being too active with your portfolio is more likely to reduce returns than improve returns. I don't mind people taking a few percent of their portfolio and having a punt here and there and saying, right, I think this is going to happen to this one. I, I look at my graphs and I think that you know, Richemont's going to do this or Anglo-American's going to do that. Have a little bit of a punt, but it must just be play money. Just leave your portfolio because in the long term, the risky asset that is the equities market is a good long term bet, Aaron. Absolutely, Lindsay, agreed. Um, and you'll see, you know, when, when the, you know, the play money, one can absolutely take you know, a little bit of a punt here and there to what they think. But as long as they understand that that should be a small percentage of their portfolio and they should keep to that, that balance, that initial strategy, whether it's that they've decided that with their wealth manager or on their own, they should keep on that strategy. Because I can tell you, and again, there's a graph that everybody will be able to read, equity versus fixed income. Um, you know, having... A portfolio that is 60 and 60, 40, 60 percent stocks and 40 percent bonds would have recovered a lot quicker than being 100 percent in equity in S&P 500. A portfolio 40 percent in bonds, um, sorry, 40 percent in stocks and 60 percent in bonds would have recovered even quicker than the 60, 40 stock split. So, and then the last two have recovered would have been being 100% in equity. Whilst you would have done better in equity, to your point, over the long term, things will recover. The whole point is, if you keep your strategy, you can smooth out those returns. And your final sentence is very simple and key. It says overall balance is key. Aaron, thank you so much for your insight. That's Aaron Ruttenberg from Brenthurst Wealth. And that was It's My Money.
It's My Money was brought to you by Brenthurst Wealth, an award-winning boutique wealth management company. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.